I'm Sage and welcome to my podcast. Here I will chat with you about my adventures in romance and non-monogamy and all of existence really, starting from my strict fundamentalist Christian childhood all the way through to where I am today, practicing relationship anarchy and still trying to figure life out bit by bit. Here you can expect frank discussions about religion, about trauma, about monogamy and of course about sex. I hope you'll have fun, I hope you'll find it interesting and most of all I hope you'll join the conversation. In this episode, I meander around for a while, which I think is going to be a theme for my podcast, telling you about what's been happening in my life, telling you about some insecurities I've been facing and some of my current mental health struggles. I then talk a little bit about trauma and from there I dive into the first few years of my childhood. So I talk about my religious upbringing, about my strict and abusive father, and just about the way that I was raised. So if you yourself have trauma, specifically developmental trauma, and if it might feel painful to you to hear about that, I hope you'll take care of yourself first before listening to this episode. And I hope that if you do, You'll find something here that means something to you. Hello, friends. I've been trying to record this episode all day. It is now three in the afternoon, and the first time I sat down, it was about 10, and I was in this state of absolute contentment. I woke up this morning to just this deep, this bone-deep feeling of tenderness. And I went outside and there was this fog. And I just sat on my porch and had coffee and couldn't see far. And it felt absolutely magical. With the dampness seeping through my clothes and my dog just staring into space. I always wonder what he's thinking about. I always think... I think there's much we can learn from cats and dogs about mindfulness. They just sit there, just staring. And then I uh, came in and decided to record. And then my neighbor knocked on my door and asked me to help her um, put up a fence. And then after that, a friend came by. And somewhere through the course of the afternoon, I found myself sort of losing my balance sort of starting to feel jittery and a little bit like vaguely triggered and just out of that state of groundedness that I had this morning. But I'm back. It's all part of the process. It's been 10 days since I recorded the first episode, although I do think I'm going to release my first two episodes together so you have something to listen to. It's been 10 days since I recorded the first episode and those have been 10 very strange days. In fact, I'd say the strangest started even before recording the first episode, but it's been it's been quite a ride. The waves of imposter syndrome that have just come over me, feeling absolutely ridiculous, feeling like, why on earth do I imagine that I could record something that other people would want to listen to? 
my ramblings sitting here on my little cushion on my floor talking about my life what what even like who who's gonna listen to this and being with that has been (laughs) has been interesting and realizing that maybe nobody is gonna listen to this but this is something that I need to do this is something that calls to me so here I am so yes these have been two very hard weeks started out with a migraine I've had increasing numbers of migraines over the past year or two and the migraine lasted for three four days really forcing me to just do nothing work and then go to bed and eat very little soup stumble around my poor dog hasn't had a proper walk in quite a while and then I had a day or two of feeling uh, fine and I picked up my activities again and then for a variety of reasons there were a few small things uh, that came up for me one of them being the recording of the first podcast episode I think my body just decided to send me stronger signals. So last week, last weekend, I woke up with this intense stomach ache. It felt like somebody had punched me in the stomach. And it just stayed for two days and it just stayed and stayed and stayed. And I think because there's something so guttural about it, so visceral, like it's in your stomach, just below your ribs, just underneath your heart that it feels intimately connected to emotion. So I spent last weekend just in bed, just weeping, eating crackers, drinking apple juice, weeping some more, curled up into a little ball, holding myself, doing breath work, but doing very slow breath work because I didn't have much energy. And then this dawning realization that I am not okay, or parts of me rather are not okay. My body is freaking the fuck out, and I should listen to it. And that was frustrating. That was frustrating to be with, because I have been on this long, slow, beautiful journey of integrating parts of myself, of alchemizing experiences, of um, becoming more whole, of healing, really. And then when my body enters this state of absolute emergency, when it it feels like there's a little child inside me that's just sobbing hysterically saying, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. Help me, help me, help me. Being confronted by the fact that that is still there, very much so, alive, is hard. I think we are so progress-minded, we're so linear in our thinking that at least myself I tend to think okay you know I've overcome this obstacle I've moved on I've integrated these life lessons and now this issue is not going to come up anymore and of course it does and also I was I was really as I said struggling with self-doubts and thinking can I have a podcast a podcast about my experiences my my adventures into life and loving and growth and healing and expanding my definition of what it means to relate can I have that if I'm so profoundly unhealed if I'm so triggered if I'm so in my stuff caught up in my stuff and of course the answer was a resounding yes I can and I should this is exactly the space I'm meant to be in right now and 
if it calls to me to do this, then I should do it. Then I should have this podcast. But I also realized that I need to take steps to ensure that my body is okay. Because this has also happened before in 2015 and 16, which feels ages ago. I went through a time of intense anxiety at work, mainly work-related back then. And my stomach started giving these phantom aches and pains and I was admitted into the ER and they did a gastroscopy and all sorts of things and couldn't find anything. And I remember back then being absolutely convinced that my doctor was missing something huge. I was like, I'm dying, there's something terribly wrong with me and they couldn't find anything. And eventually I just, you know, tried eating healthier, cut out gluten and dairy for a while and Months later, because of the anxiety, I went on antidepressants, on SSRIs. And the stomach pain went away. And until this weekend, I never made the connection, which is ridiculous. But I never did. I never realized that the anti-anxiety meds, well, the antidepressants, but I use them for anxiety, that they helped my body get out of the state of emergency, helped it get to just a more regulated state, and that's why my stomach aches went away. And so I battled with that. Should I go back on antidepressants? I have had more of these stomach pains. I have had migraines. I've been deeply triggered, sitting with a part of me that feels huge and expansive and brave and wants to move forward. And another part of my body that's balled up tight, tight, curled up in a little corner saying, no, 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 don't come near me. Is it an admission of defeat if I go back on antidepressants? Is this the right thing for me right now? And yeah, on Monday I made my appointment with my GP, told her about this and she prescribed me some SSRIs. So since Monday I've been back on SSRIs. And they've hit me really hard. I'd forgotten about that as well. The first week or so of taking SSRIs, for me at least, come with quite a host of symptoms. Nausea at first, the first few days. And then this deep, this bone deep limpness, this weakness. So I've been moving in and out of my house slowly, eating soup, which my lovely friends have brought me, sleeping a lot, spending time on the couch, Ah, so this is where I'm at. Another thing I did was uh, to spend the past few weeks, the past 10 days or so, reading The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kork. I'd been meaning to read it for a long time. If you haven't heard of the book, it's one of the quintessential books on trauma. And it's jam-packed full of research, personal stories, and many, many different suggestions for types of therapies that have been proven to work more than talk therapy does because I have been in and out of talk therapy for 10 years and it's been valuable. It's given me words for my experiences, but I feel that it only brings you up to a certain point. And where I'm at right now in my life, the relationships that I'm in are forcing me, if I want to be present in them, if I want to be brave and fully embodied in my relationships, and those span the whole spectrum of friendship and intimate relationships, if I want to show up fully and bravely, then I need to really heal my trauma because otherwise I keep returning to this 
these flashbacks, these flashbacks that just come up and they just scream, loss, 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 alone, alone, alone. There's a part of my body that just shouts, alone, alone, alone. You're going to be alone. Any moment now, a tragedy will strike. Any moment now, you're going to be desolate and abandoned and rejected again. And I know, with my conscious mind, I know that that's my childhood speaking. Those are my childhood wounds speaking. Those are my abandonment wounds and my rejection wounds speaking. Mm. But knowing, knowing that it is so doesn't mean I can force my body out of its state of emergency. And so I read The Body Keeps the Score and I cried a lot. And it was beautiful. What a fantastic book. I would highly recommend it. And one of the chapters was about EMDR. Ooh, and I can't remember what it stands for. Eye movement desensitization and retraining. Something like that, but don't, don't take my word for it. Something like that. If you haven't heard about it, Google it. Um, it's a type of therapy that's been proven to be extremely effective on trauma. And I Googled EMDR therapist in the area. And I found one and I saw her a few days ago for a preliminary meeting and my medical insurance just cleared me for 15 sessions. So I'm extremely excited and nervous and mainly nervous because I'm putting so much hope in this. I want to do something apart from talking and I have been doing things apart from talking. I've been really being with myself and holding myself, literally physically holding myself and weeping and it, it feels beautiful. And also I need help. I need more support than I can give myself right now. So that's where I'm at. I'm on SSRIs, hopefully only for six months. That's, a, that's the plan. And I'm going to be doing EMDR and I'm drinking lots of soup and cuddling my dog and apologizing to him profusely all the time for not taking him on walks but I'm still very weak and this is where my story picks up today and I'd love to hear about your experiences with these kinds of triggers with with imposter syndrome with fear with wounds deep abandonment wounds so if you relate to anything that I'm that I've been saying please send me a message please drop me a voice note I'd love to share your experience on this podcast as well. In any case, I think that brings me quite neatly to what this podcast is meant to be about, the topic of the day, and we're 15 minutes in. And I think one of the reasons why I've been so terrified of recording this episode and why I've felt so triggered is because this feels very vulnerable. This... Um, I've realized before I could tell you about my romantic and sexual escapades, I need to tell you about where I came from, what formed me, what shaped me. And when I say what shaped me, I also want to clearly state that that's not the only things that shaped me, right? We're not solely shaped by our childhood experiences, we're shaped by everything, and we shape things, and everything influences everything. But I do feel like my formative years are important if we're going to be journeying together. And an experience I had last week, I think is also salient at this point. Uh, and it definitely also contributed to the intensity of what happened for me in the past few days of my body really feeling triggered and freaked out. I had a sexual experience with a woman and 
it was different from any other sexual experience I've ever had in the sense that it was incredibly easy. I I couldn't understand it. Usually my body, you know, especially with new people, and this was a new person, especially, usually my body takes a while, even a long while, to relax. Um, pleasure takes a while to ease into. Climaxes might happen, might most likely not, you know. And this experience was... I think the best word I can use to describe it was it was friendly. It was a friendly experience and easy. And afterwards I went home and I was like, what just happened? Why was there none of the struggle that I've had in my, in at least in my one night stands, you know, like feeling the need to perform, feeling like I need to look sexy, wondering if I'm pleasing, wondering if I'm not going to come fast enough, you know, wondering if the guy has been, if he's tired or waiting for me to finish or, you know, all of those stories playing out in one's mind, especially with new people. I also realized that I've never, I'd never hooked up with a woman before without men being present, at least. I'd only ever had sex with women in group context before which I hadn't really fully realized I mean there, there have been other intimacies with women alone and those have been always profound but I think one of the reasons why this experience was so different was because there were no men there and I have so many scripts about men so many internalized stories about them so much fear so much pain still so much anger towards them so much of an urge to protect myself to not uncover myself that relaxing and opening fully is very hard very very hard and I hadn't realized the depth of that until I had this encounter until I had an encounter with a person about whom I did not have a script about whom I did not have a deep societally conditioned story and things just flowed and they were easy and relaxed and it wasn't this deep encounter it was just a friendly sexual experience and it really broke my heart I came home and I was like, is this how deep it runs for me? Before that, I thought, you know, this is how my body works. I take a long time to warm up. But it turns out that might not be how my body works. That might be how my soul works because my soul, my heart, some scared part inside me doesn't feel safe with men, not fully so. And that is in spite of a lot of work, a lot of work that I've done to build trust, build trust in myself, because that's also a large part of it, is I don't fully trust myself to keep myself safe with men. So I think that's, that's salient. And it was painful to realize after so much work, there are still things that run this deep. But here we are. And that brings me to a I suppose, my origin story. My parents met when they were very young. They were 20. And 
oh, it feels really strange. It feels really strange to discuss my parents in this way. My dad and I are estranged. My mom and I are very close. I know that my mom wouldn't mind, and I will check in with her in any case. And I don't really mind if my dad minds. And yet, it feels as if this isn't my story to tell. But it is. It is my story to tell. And so I'm going to tell it, even though it feels strange. My parents met when they were very young. My dad was traumatized, is traumatized, as is my mom, as most people are, because of a variety of reasons. Whatever the reasons might be, by the time my dad was 20, he was weaponized, angry, confused, impetuous, wounded, scared, terrified. When I think about my dad, I think of terror, this deep fear that people are going to find him out, that people are going to see that he's unworthy, this deep belief that he's unworthy, and this constant lashing out and reactivity because of it. And my mom, on the other hand, had been taught to be submissive, had been conditioned with an aggressive, loving but aggressive father. Yes, those two words can be true at the same time. To be used to unreliability, to be used to fits of anger and violence. And when I think back, I think she was for a large part of my childhood, really stuck in freeze mode. If you're familiar with polyvagal theory, there are two nervous systems, well, two, no, your nervous system has more than one state. And there's the sympathetic state and the parasympathetic state, which I'm not going to expand on. I'm not a psychologist, and I'm also not educated on this well enough. But the sympathetic state, which is your state of nervous arousal, you know, when you're being chased by something, entails the fight flight, fawn, freeze. Freeze is the deepest level. It's when you know you can't do anything anymore. The lion has caught you. The only thing you can hope to perhaps do is to freeze, to fake death, to enter a catatonic state. And I think my mom spent parts of my childhood stuck in that freeze. Whereas my dad spent his entire life, he must be so exhausted, he spent his entire life in fight, 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 prove, 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 grandiose ideas, strange messages from God, pacing up and down, needing to protect himself against any possible threat by being bigger, scarier, larger, more intelligent, more blustering, more angry, more convincing than anything that could possibly try and attack him. And so my parents were primed, really, for each other, ready-made for this, for this match. They, um, they were fervent Christians, and this was in the 80s in South Africa. To give you a bit of context, this was the dying gasps of apartheid. So every, every young man had to either serve in the army and go to the border war, which was terrible and has left a generation of men with deep deep wounds that they can barely talk about so young men had to either do that for two years or go to the police for four years serve in the police force my dad chose the latter and then quit halfway um i'm not sure what happened but i know that he saw 
atrocities being committed. And he didn't want to be part of that. And so he quit and became a missionary and met my mom. And also in the 80s in South Africa, the church was very, very strong, specifically the, is the Dutch Reformed Church, especially amongst Afrikaans culture, which is my cultural heritage. So my parents were raised in the Dutch Reformed Church, as most people were back then, and the church and the state were deeply intertwined, and the church basically gave authority to apartheid. And my parents both became born-again Christians, fundamentalist, evangelical, fiery Christians in their teens, which was a scandal back then. And uh, both, as far as I understand, I might have my facts slightly wrong, but as far as I understand, both had to leave the church and both were adult baptized, which was again a huge scandal back then. Um, It was against the doctrine of the church. And they joined other fringe church movements. And both had a deep and fervent love of God. Especially my mom. My dad's relationship to God, to me, is complicated. It's, I find it very ego-driven. I find it very... And we see that with lots of, of the big men in fundamentalist or evangelical churches, right? It's almost as if God just acts as an echo chamber. Confirmation of your own largeness, a new space that you can carve out for yourself where you can become a big man, where you can get God to agree with you, where you can really use scripture, twist scripture to your own advantage. So I'm not going to say that there wasn't also some purity and some truth to my dad's faith, but it was definitely very egoic as well. Whilst my mom's faith was impassioned, And that has made all the difference for me in my childhood. But I'm getting ahead of myself. My parents met as missionaries after my dad had quit the police service. And then they married promptly. Because, you know, no sex before marriage. I'm sure that was a factor. And uh, then my dad got called back to finish his service. And he didn't want to. So being enterprising and having a deep love of languages that had already manifested in him starting to learn French... He applied for political refugee status to France. And so my parents emigrated to France at the age of 21. My mom didn't speak a word of it, brand newly wed. And I think she was in for the shock of her life, not only because of the culture shock, not only because of the alienation and the loneliness, but very quickly I think regret must have set in. But she stuck around because she believed that this is what a good woman does, this is what the Bible asks, you know, that you stay. And so I was born in France a year later, South African kid to South African parents in this country. And my siblings came after me. We're five kids, as I said in the previous podcast. And it was lonely. Deep, deep, deeply lonely. That is how I would summarize my experience of France. I was a wide-eyed, curious child, but from a very young age I was also very scared. And I was scared because my dad was really scary, and because my mom was really scared. When I had this stomach complaint last week, my mom sent me long voice notes 
saying how this, this stomach pain of mine reminded her of how I was as a child and how my anxiety always manifested in stomach pains. I think my dad thought that he was going to be an involved parent. He was going to be involved in raising his children. He wasn't going to do it like his father did, like the men and the generations before him in Afrikaans culture, very, very deeply misogynistic, not involved. The mother does all the work and the father does all the breadwinning. And I think my dad truly thought he was going to break the pattern and be involved. But he was involved in all the wrong ways. He tried to force feed me when I wouldn't eat. And being a sensitive child, that made me want to eat less. And then he would get violent and angry and try to force feed me more. And mom said she would take me to the bathroom and try and feed me there away from him. And I had trouble sleeping since since I can remember, since before I can remember. And my mom said there was a time when I was a toddler that I just couldn't eat. For three days I couldn't eat because I had such intense stomach aches and she took me to the pediatrician and the pediatrician said to her that it's anxiety and I think that says a lot I was deeply anxious and I was scared of men I was specifically scared of men with beards my dad had a beard and I bore the brunt not that my siblings didn't have it hard they've all had deep struggles and they've all got their own traumas I think I bore the brunt of his experimentation, of his impatience. He didn't know that babies cry. He didn't know that babies cry through the night sometimes and that they don't always get soothed just by, you know, giving them milk. And I was a, a curious child, a talkative child. I, I wouldn't ever stop talking. And I think that triggered two things in my father. It reminded me of him because he was a precocious child, he was smart and precocious and alive. And I don't know the details, but I think his aliveness got wounded when he was very young. And I think it was almost unbearable for him to see it in another person. Not consciously so. It wasn't like he was thinking, oh, this reminds me of myself and I find it unbearable. But I think on some level, seeing my aliveness, my curiosity, my verbosity, my need to get out there and explore and see things and reminded him painfully of himself and he felt a deep need to put that down to humiliate that and of course I also triggered another deep hate in him and that's hate of women my dad I can't say this any other way my dad hates women and so my childhood was hard because my dad had it out for me if I have to be honest he wanted to humiliate me and he did and I have this thing now <laughs> that I've become recently aware of where I suspect everyone of trying to humiliate me, where I suspect everyone of making fun of me behind my back or of feeling sorry for me. And I didn't even know until quite recently. I didn't realize. And then that pops up in my romantic relationships especially. Power comes into it when power isn't really at play. I insert power power struggles, power dynamics into my romantic relationships, even when those aren't actually relevant. Because I'm playing out this dynamic. And of course, that's, it's not the full truth. It's not like my, all my relationships are doomed. Not at all. I've had and I have such beautiful, powerful ro romantic relationships and friendships. But I have seen this pattern crop up. We were also raised um, very religiously. 
Um, so we couldn't really mix with other kids. And when we did, my dad would soon put a stop to that as soon as things got too entangled. We moved around a lot. I think we moved around about 18 times when I was a child, maybe more. And we didn't fit in because we were South African, but also because we were, we were kept apart purposefully. We never stayed in one church for longer than a month or two. My dad would always pick a fight with the pastor, with the preacher, and then we'd move on. And at school, we weren't allowed to to watch Disney movies. or We were allowed to watch some Disney movies, but we didn't have a TV in any case. But we weren't allowed to to listen to Spice Girls or wear skimpy clothes or read fairy tales even or anything that would have any hint of mythology or um, paganism or worldliness. That was the word that was used a lot. We weren't allowed to play with Barbies because they were adult female bodies sexualized and we were kept we were told to be pure especially us girls we were first three sisters and then my two brothers were born later on my dad had this very definite idea about the role of a woman and a woman should be submissive as Paul said somewhere in Ephesians wives submit unto your husbands as husbands must submit unto God or something like that and so that was really hammered home all the time we must be submissive we must be submissive we must be pure one day my dad will choose our husbands and he will hand us over to our husbands unsullied totally pure with our bodies and our minds clean of course as for sex education we received barely any again i think it's ironic because i think my parents tried hard especially my dad tried hard to give us a better sex education than his parents gave him so he tried to explain to us how sex works. But he used so many euphemisms because he was obviously carrying so much shame about it that I didn't understand my own anatomy until I was maybe 14 years old. I'd been menstruating for more than a year before I knew that I had a vagina. I never even looked at where the blood came from. I knew it came from somewhere there, but I didn't understand my own anatomy and I didn't dare look. So the sex education that we did receive was wrapped in so many euphemisms and embarrassment and I could just feel my parents' residual shame and I was grossed out by the topic and didn't want to listen, of course. And and so sex was shameful and I knew that sex was something that happens between a mommy and a daddy and honestly, until, I don't know, maybe I was 10, I thought that something happens to you when you get married that makes it possible to have sex. I thought there was like a little switch that flips and that before that it is physically impossible to have sex. How I understood it from my dad because I asked him, can people have sex when they're not married? And he said very clearly, no, they can't. So I thought he meant they can't physically have sex. I thought something opens in your body or something like flips, like I said, a switch, and then it becomes possible. And of course, I also thought that people only do it to have children, you know. So if you have five kids and your parents had sex a full five times. So that was the extent of my sexual education. That and knowing that everybody else was gross and evil, that the whole of France was deeply fucked up. My, pa- my, my dad reminded us of that a lot because, of course, France is a very secular country and sex was not a taboo topic at all. People at school spoke about it. Um, you could see 
topless magazines in most magazine shops. Of course, there were sex scenes on TV. We always had to close our eyes and our ears when a sex scene would come up. And my dad always reminded us of the godlessness of this country where people actually have sex, you know, and talk about it and the deep immorality of that. And apart from sex itself, there were other messages that I internalized. I remember once crying. I was always a very emotional child. I cried a lot and that was really hard because it felt like weakness and it felt like weakness that my dad enjoyed exploiting. And my reaction to deep rage would usually be to burst into tears and my dad would pounce on it and point to it and make fun of me. And so I've always had a love-hate relationship with my own tears that only got resolved over the past few years. In any case, I, I learned that being a woman is shameful and that we should damp that shit down. We should lock down our emotions because they're embarrassing. Mm-hmm. I remember one time my mom telling me, and she meant well, she meant to protect me. I mean, she knew that I was the sensitive child as she had been too, as she still was. And I was perhaps 11 when my mom said to me once, as women, Sage, as women, we need to hold that in because our emotions are big and our emotions can be really, really wrong. So we need to hide that. We need to keep that inside. And I spent, spent maybe the next 10 years trying to keep that inside, feeling ashamed for my big emotions, apologizing when I'd burst into tears or have emotional responses. I learned that being a woman is an inconvenience and I learned that women are there for men to serve men and for their comfort, for their ease. I also learned that I wasn't safe. My dad was at times very physically violent and you you never knew when it was going to happen. So his moods went up and down and up and down and up and down. And the smallest thing would set him off and he would just give us huge, huge spankings. I remember once sneaking out with my sister and going down to the basement where we sat with some friends and listened to Spice Girl music in the garage, in the basement. And my dad, he was having a nap, but he woke up and he obviously saw that we were missing and found us and dragged us out in front of the other shocked kids, dragged us out by our clothes, dragged us up the stairs into our little apartment and hitting us so hard that my mom tried to interfere and then telling us, I'm doing this because I love you. I'm doing this because I love you. And even then, I knew that that was not true. At least I had that. I knew that this is not true. My dad doesn't love me. If he does, it's a partial, wounded, deeply inadequate love. Yes, there could be love in the mix, but how can you love your children when you hate yourself? And so at least I didn't believe that, because if I had internalized that message, I think the damage would have been so deep. At least I didn't believe that. But what I did start believing is that safety is not a prerequisite for love. Because I did know that my mom loves me. My mom, throughout all of this, tried her best. And she was suffering from depression. And she was alienated and alone. And and my dad didn't want to work for a while. He felt called to not work. But my mom couldn't go to work because she couldn't leave us alone with my dad. It wasn't safe. And we would dissolve into hysteria, hysteria if she left us alone. 
And also, I think my dad told her she's not allowed to work. So we lived off the state for a while while my dad studied and got a degree. And so in between all of this, my mom did manage to create some sense of safety. Mm. Whenever my dad was gone, we had so much fun. Mm. We'd make, we'd sing at the table. We'd play around. My mom would go sledding with us because we lived in the Alps at that point in France. So there'd be deep snow and we'd all go sledding up and down, up and down, up and down. My mom laughing hysterically and us laughing. And she'd tell us stories. And I think one of the most precious things she she did was to sing and to dance. My grandparents had sent us cassettes of South African music. For instance, Ladysmith Black Mambazo, whom you might know of um, Paul Simon fame. They had a a cassette, rather, this was before CDs, of beautiful music, songs that always made my mom cry. And to this day, that's so deep in my heart, those songs. Shoshuloza and Kosi Sikileli and so many other gospel songs with these beautiful choirs of people singing. And I remember it making my mom cry. And to this day, it makes me cry. And my mom also danced. She danced a lot in the kitchen, in the rooms. And so there was joy around her and some safety around her. But I learned early on that the safety was limited, that she did not, could not, would not protect us against my dad. I think Mm -hmm. once or twice she did intervene, but really he was so much stronger and larger than her in any case. Mm -hmm. And also I think she believed that she was meant to bow to his superior knowledge. She was meant Mm -hmm. to submit and not rebel against him. And so I learned Mm -hmm. that you can be loved and not feel safe. And that has been a hard, hard, hard lesson to unlearn because I have over and over plunged myself into relationships where I have felt deep and tender and passionate love but I've been profoundly unsafe, have pushed myself far beyond what I should have, have placed myself in actual danger because I have no sense of safety, because I haven't cultivated an awareness of what it means to look out for myself. And also because I have divorced the two concepts from each other. For me, I can feel loved. I can experience love from somebody else, even whilst knowing that I'm not safe with them, that they're not safe with me, that I'm not safe with myself. And of course, that's what it comes down to, first of all, is learning that love entails cherishing and protecting so that if I love myself if I truly can hold myself and be with myself and then I also must keep myself safe and honor whatever that means so that was another lesson that I learned that love does not equal safety and another one that I learned is that my body is embarrassing First of all, because it's female, but also because it's clumsy and skinny. And I recently learned the link between trauma and clumsiness. I didn't know that. I, my dad always, always, always called me very clumsy. I used to break things, knock things over. And he always used to say, why are you so clumsy? And recently I heard that spatial awareness is something that trauma survivors often lose and that they need to regain. 
And I have, I think I've made large strides in that, mainly due to yoga, which I've been doing for years. And that have, that's really given me renewed spatial awareness. But as a child, I hated all forms of sports. I was embarrassed to participate in anything. I was limp and shy and always trailed behind all the others when you'd have to do any sport activities. In fact, it filled me with anxiety. Okay, at this point, I'm starting to feel embarrassed. <laughs> It feels like I've just given you this litany of bad things. And I want to say two things. One is that I know, I'm so deeply aware of the fact that many, many, many people have had it worse. It breaks my heart to realize how few people actually are raised by parents who can hold them lovingly and safe. How many people emerge from childhood traumatized? And I want to honor that and pause there for a moment and say that as difficult as my story is, or parts of my story are, I also want to say that this is not rare. And that worse things are not rare. And that I honor myself and everybody else who has come through childhood and is doing their best. And the second thing I want to say is that this only, of course, paints half a picture. And I've tried to touch on the good things as well. And there were beautiful things. My siblings are fantastic. My sister, who's just a year younger than I, and I are very close. I'm very close with the others too. But when I was a child, that specific closeness really was important. One of the most important relationships of my life. And... Strangely, one of the other things is that because my dad was so clearly, and I say this in air quotes, the bad guy, it was easy in a sense to at least detach from some of his harmful messages. So some of the messages did permeate my consciousness and have been the work of my life to detangle, to detach myself from, but many of his more overt abuse really just didn't harm me that much because I didn't believe him because he was so clearly the bad guy and my mom was there as the opposite and we just believed my mom we believed her love in us we believed her faith in us and she just absolutely adored us she was a very intuitive a good just a good mom my dog just by the way you, you probably heard him breathing throughout He's snoring very loudly and there's nothing I can do about that. And he also just did his little thing where he gets up from his bed, does two little turns and then lies down again. So I apologize for that noise. In any case, my mom served as a counterweight. And in a sense, that's, that was, that's also interesting because of course it took me much longer to realize that I do hold anger against her as well or that I did and that there are unprocessed things there as well. But when I was a child, it was very uncomplicated. There was the bad guy and the good guy and we believed the good guy. So although we were scared, although we didn't feel safe, although there was all this tension and this walking on eggshells, there was also this person who had my back. And like I said, that has made all the difference. So... I'm going to end this here for now. We came, to South, we came back to South Africa when I was 10. And I'll pick that up tomorrow or the next time we talk. And I just want to say that, that, that I'm okay. That life's okay. That life has been startlingly beautiful. 
and that I'm so grateful to be here, that I'm grateful for all of these experiences that I just told you about. And uh, I feel like I overshared, I feel like I gave way too many details, but this is what's happening, this is what wants to come up, this is what wants to be told. So I'll pick up from there the next time, and I hope you're okay, dear listener. I hope wherever you are in this world, that you are cherishing yourself, holding yourself, that you are alive to the wonder that is you. Thank you.